Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Hard to believe that Christmas is less than 10 days away, and it, it seems as that draws nearer, the, the flurry of activities just accelerates at an almost, an almost excruciating pace. So I'm glad that today we get to take the time together once again to, to come back to what matters most, to remember in the midst of it all, the reason for the season, Jesus. And to do that, as we pick up in our series on these early chapters of the gospel according to Matthew, early chapters in which a king is born. And in which Matthew sets about to describe for us the kind of king Jesus came to be. Beginning with the fact that Jesus came as a rest for the weary. As a rest for the weary, which we saw in his genealogy. But beyond that, that he, he came as a, a savior for sinners. Which we saw as we considered last week his remarkable birth. And this week, we're going to continue to fill out this picture of the kind of king that Jesus came to be as we see that he likewise came as a shepherd for Israel, as a shepherd for Israel. And interesting, we're going to see it as we consider the arrival in Jerusalem sometime after Jesus' birth of a company of non-Israelites, what's traditionally been thought of as three wise men. That's what they're sometimes called who, who show up in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there and encourage you to open up and follow along as we go through that. I won't read it again, having uh, Jordan just having done that, but we're going to be in that passage. I'd invite you to be there as well. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our hope that today we would know Jesus more when we leave this place than when we showed up. That we would know, as, as Matthew seeks to explain the kind of king that Jesus came to be, not just again a rest for the weary and a, and a savior for sinners, but that we would know him as a shepherd for Israel shepherd for all those found in Israel who become part of your people, whether they began as part of your people or not. We pray today that it would be so for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. I remember as a child being invited to participate in my church's Christmas pageant, and by invited, I mean I was forced by my parents who signed me up against my better judgment. So I reluctantly joined the, the collection of youngsters who had likewise been forced to be in the pageant by their parents, holding out hope that my lack of talent and enthusiasm would outshine theirs and be enough to secure for me one of those coveted roles that didn't require you to speak. Well, perhaps as a, 
a braying donkey or as a bleeding sheep. I even remember hoping beyond hope that I'd be cast for that coveted role of the star. It didn't have to do anything except hang in the night sky by some contraption that some dad had thought up on the side. But in one of the greatest tragedies of my life, a scar that I carry with me even to this day, I was cast not only in a speaking role, but in one of the only roles, one of three roles that was required to sing. Can you guess? To circle around that little makeshift stage singing, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we travel afar. I'm only three <laughs> roles. Thank you. Thank you. It was worse back then, believe it or not. Singing, though, and then coming into Jerusalem to ask King Herod, where is he? Where is the child that has been born? And just like that, really. Where is he? Because honestly, none of us really were caring at that moment about the promised king. The only thing we were caring about was the promised cookies afterward. We just wanted to get the darn play over with. And the sad result was that in that pageant, you weren't able to tell either by the tone of our voices or the expression on our faces or by our drooping shoulders or our dour looks. You weren't able to tell a difference between us and the enemies. You couldn't tell who was more disappointed that King Jesus had come. We three kings of Orient are, or the we King Herod. According to Matthew, though, the, the picture from that pageant couldn't have been further from the truth. Because in Matthew, the contrast between those seeking Jesus and those who, who eventually seek to kill Jesus is evident at almost every turn. And that's what I want to look at this morning, this contrast between the wise men on the one hand and Herod and his cronies on the other. Let's begin with the wise men. The wise men who are introduced in verse 1 when it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men, which translates the Greek word magi, which if you're just trying to understand who these guys were, you can think magicians. Magi, magicians. Not in the, the, the pull a rabbit out of a hat sense, but in the sit down and let me tell you your fortune sense. So wise in a, in a worldly sense, because best we can tell, <coughs> these were the enchanters and the conjurers of the East, most associated in the Bible with Daniel's day as his Babylonian counterparts. Remember Daniel, who, who interpreted the dreams of kings and, and rose in the ranks of the Babylonian court? 
but did so out of a deep dependence on God. Because you remember what Daniel said, don't you? When he was called to interpret one particular dream, he said no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians or astrologers can do such things, but there is a God in heaven who can, who does because he's the one who gives dreams in the first place. Well, these are Daniel's counterparts, the, the enchanters, the, the, the magicians and astrologers who, who look not to the God of the stars, but to the stars themselves as their God. Who look to the stars to tell them the future. I, individuals who would spend their lives observing the night skies and drawing insights and inferences into human affairs. <coughs> which is interesting, right? It's interesting that these are the guys who, who, who made a living writing horoscopes, that these are the guys who made a, a living tracking the zodiac, that these are the guys, not kings themselves, but again, magicians, probably working in the court of another king, that these are the guys who come looking for King Jesus. Interesting, right? <coughs> and the first thing, as Mike brings that water up here, I hope. Thanks, Mike. The best Christmas gift ever. Kids are all dropping like flies on the last one standing. Hopefully will be for the next 30 minutes. The first thing, though, I want you to notice uh, about these, these magicians, these magi, these wise men, is how far they come. Notice this, how far they come traveling, as best we can tell, over 550 miles from Babylon, 550 miles from the east, across the, the trade routes of Mesopotamia, with all the planning and all the problems and all the perils that went with it across the desert wasteland. It must have made for some conversation with the wives, right? Honey, I'm going on a little trip with my buddies. You mean a business trip? Well, sort of. We got, we're going to follow this star. A star? Yeah, a star. You mean like a second star in the right and straight on till morning kind of star? Well, sort of, but this is a real star, and I know it sounds crazy, honey, but we're kind of convinced, me and my buddies, that is, we're kind of convinced that, that this one means something. Well, whatever floats your boat, but how far is it? 500 miles or so. 500 miles! Life is brought to a screeching halt until they head off and search it out, which incidentally isn't a, a bad way to go. Because surely if what they noticed in the night sky meant what they thought it meant, surely it warranted them giving up for the moment the writing of horoscopes and their fixation with what the stars were or were not saying about their lives, to, to figure out what the one who made the stars might be saying through, through the stars about all of life. 
And, and I love this, that their fixation with the stars, which they probably thought of as, as these cosmic forces that held sway over history, that in their fixation with the stars, they bumped into the God behind them. Which isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like God to lead people from all points of the compass to himself and to his son, Jesus Christ? I remember a story of a friend of mine that wasn't too different from this, who had gotten so desperate in life, so desperate for answers in life, that, that she had started going to a psychic, a psychic down in Chicago by chance, and and during one of her visits, the, the psychic learned over, leaned over real quiet-like, uh, leaned over looking into the, her crystal ball or whatever it was, and said to this friend of mine that she needed to go and visit the Moody Church, which I imagine isn't something your typical psychic says, to go and visit the Moody Church. Uh, the church that I was working at at the time. And to, to not tell anyone why she was there. And, and, and to not tell anyone who had sent her, but to just listen to what she heard. And this friend of mine took that advice and ended up there on a Sunday when the pastor was speaking of all things about the dangers of getting wrapped up with psychics. <laughs> so listening to this psychic, she met Jesus. And listening to this pastor, she never went back to the psychic. And it suggests, again, that God uses all sorts of means to draw all sorts of people to himself. Whether that be the astrology of the ancient East, or what we're seeing in our own day, God using the astronomy that has developed in the West. And you see God's hand particularly here in how far these wise men come, how far they come, some 550 miles, which is incomparably greater, if you just notice this, than the five miles Herod and his cronies, and for that matter, the rest of Jerusalem, refuse to go or neglect to go to Bethlehem. Did you notice that? Because it's not like anyone was calling into question the truth of the wise men's story. They, they knew the Messiah was coming. They had seen the sign themselves in the sky, even if they didn't understand what it meant. Nobody is doubting the truth of what the wise men are saying. They just don't care enough to go search it out. Can you believe that? Contrast that, though, with how much these wise men cared. How far they come. Now let me just talk about how much they cared. That they were going to find this newborn king, whatever it took. So much so that, that they were willing to come into a foreign city and just start asking people where he was. I mean, I wouldn't even go into a gas station to ask for directions. Last trip we were on, we actually got lost, and I sent Catherine into the gas station to ask for directions. <laughs> Yet here's these guys showing up in a foreign city 
no matter what the looks they get, asking where the Messiah is. I don't care a thing who thinks they're crazy doing it. Why? Because their intent was to come. What does verse 2 say? To worship him. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And if you trace it through, that, that's precisely what they do when they find this newborn king down in verse 11. They fall down at the feet of Jesus as a baby, no less, and worship him. And not just any worship, but notice it's a costly worship. It's a, it's a costly worship with some of the most costly goods available in the ancient world. This wasn't just an opportunity to re-gift the things that they didn't want for themselves. These were treasures, it says, which is why historically these guys have been thought of as kings. Because after all, who has gifts like this to give away? But they're not kings. They just demonstrate in their lavishness how much they care and how intent they are on worshiping. I wonder if anyone would ever mistake us for kings by how we worship, by how lavishly we give back to God, to the work of God, whether that's here and our commitment to this body or, or elsewhere. I wonder if anybody would ever mistake us for kings, or rather if we, we look more like Herod or the religious leaders he had under his thumb, or even just the citizens of Jerusalem. Because the most you get here is someone like Herod saying the wise men should report back to him so that, verse 8, he too might come and worship. But, but that's during a secret meeting, most likely because Herod has already concocted his secret plan. No, Herod, he doesn't really want to worship. He has other intentions that have grown out of how troubled he is. That's what verse 3 told us, that, that while the wise men were intent on worshiping Herod and all Jerusalem with him was troubled. You see it there? Which for him makes sense, doesn't it? I, I mean, if you were king, how would you like someone showing up into your city and looking for someone else, some other king? He cares about this king because of the threat it poses to his own kingdom. But why was Jerusalem troubled along with Herod? Because that's what it says, right? And all Jerusalem with him. Best guess? Because they were troubled at what Herod might do about it. They were afraid this arrival of another king would upset the apple cart and force matters in a, a little less comfortable direction and not for nothing... In the years leading up to this, Herod had already killed two of his own sons for trying to take his throne, along with 300 military officials. And he'd kill another in the years following. So, so rather than care about the newborn king, the people are apathetic, just satisfied with the status quo. We've come to find the one born king of the Jews, the wise men say. Well, that's nice. Hope you find him. Here's your hat. What's the hurry? Don't come back now, you hear? Yikes. 
Perhaps the greatest contrast, though, is not with how far the wise men came or how much the wise men cared, but with how spiritually sensitive the wise men were. How spiritually sensitive the wise men were. On the one hand, to the celestial wonders they had witnessed, to the fingerprints God had left all over creation, real astronomical events in the heavens that modern science apparently confirms. If you want to read more on that, the authority on the subject now is a man by Colin Nickel who's written this book, The, the Great Christ Comet. I think for the holidays, it's on Amazon. It's, it's worth much more than this, but it's on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Well worth your time. The, the leading authority on this now in the world, a biblical scholar of, of some repute who has gone out and done the homework and now become respected in the astronomical community. It's, 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 um, it has uh, uh, endorsements from scholars at Cambridge and Oxford, astronomers around the world. Real astronomical events in the heavens. That modern science apparently confirms. Again, looking at these celestial wonders this book does, the wise men witnessed. Notice, though, in the text that that the wise men were spiritually sensitive not just to the wonders they witnessed, which are full of technical language, technical language of how you would have described these things in the ancient world, Notice, though, that they are also spiritually sensitive to the word they were made aware of. Sensitive to God's word. So so that when they're sent to Bethlehem, they go with this prophecy of Micah ringing in their ears and go before the star even has a chance to confirm their choice, right? Right? Because it's only when they're on their way, is what the text says, that the star is said to go before them. And it's worth calling attention to that. Without that word, they never would have gotten to where they were going. They presumably would have been left wandering around Jerusalem. But the word corrects their course. And isn't that how it often is, that God's word spoken to us and shared with us is God's tool ultimately to get us to God's son. Sometimes when so close, yet still so far away. Because while God uses all sorts of things to get us going, It's his word he consistently uses to get us home. And so too with the wise men. Even though no one else seems to be as sensitive as they are. Not the citizens of Jerusalem who are are bothered by the idea. Or the religious leaders who are incredibly indifferent to it. Or Herod who apparently only cares about the prophecy about the Messiah in order to carry out his sinister plan against the Messiah. Here's a group of individuals who 
have not only encountered God in his world, but we're willing to stake everything on his word. And so, are privileged to finally enjoy the worship of God's Son. Because when they saw the star, it says in verse 10, now coming to rest over the place where the child was, which is Hard as it is to fathom was just that, a star pointing out the very place, the very house where Jesus was. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And did what in verse 11? Worshipped him. To ultimately enjoy the worship of God's son. Worship him. Worshipped who? God? No, worship Jesus. The one this account is really all about. Because sure, the contrast is important, along with what it says about these wise men and how far they came and how much they cared and how spiritually sensitive they were. But all the more, the account is about Jesus and the kind of king he came to be. And even the contrast serves that, that greater end to, to paint Jesus as the kind of king that, that makes this possible for astrologers in, in the midst of, of running after everything but God to bump into God and eventually come under God and ultimately enjoy the worship of God's Son. Because the kind of king Jesus came to be was, here it is, a shepherd for Israel. Now you've got to say, but wait, wait a minute. Isn't that the precise opposite of what we're trying to say here? These are non-Israelites. Isn't that the precise opposite? That Jesus came to be a shepherd for Israel. That Jesus is the, the king of the Jews, as the wise men themselves said, and a, a shepherd for Israel, like Micah said, and therefore that he's not a king for anyone else. Well, take Micah first, as he's quoted in verse 6, which says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Is not the point that Jesus is a king born in Bethlehem for Israel? For Israel. And not, it may seem, for anyone else. That does seem to be the point. The scribes and the religious leaders of the time were trying to make where was he born? Where was he born? King of the Jews. Born in Bethlehem. For the prophet says, O Bethlehem. But he came, we hope you understand, to be a shepherd for Israel. Which if you go back to Micah, you can find that that is indeed a bit of what Micah is saying, though that is not what the verse says that they are quoting. 
They throw that in, lasso it together, and put it before everyone as a slur to these astrologers. But even though you can find that in Micah, that deduction is not what Micah's driving at. Because God makes the point, the point the Apostle Paul will make later, even in those prophets from Micah through to Nahum, through to Jonah, which some of us should be somewhat familiar with, that yes, my Messiah will come, a shepherd for my people, a shepherd for Israel, but not all Israel is Israel. And Israel is even more, wider still, through faith. So that the slur becomes for the wise men their hope of salvation, of putting their faith in the one before whom they worship. But to make such worship possible and just follow the lines that Matthew's drawing, to make such worship possible, the baby here must give us something to put our faith in. By growing and finally giving himself up to be nailed to a tree. To be hailed at the end of this gospel once again, the king of the Jews, the only other time in the book that it's used. But there, it will be by a different set of Gentiles. This time that are set on killing him. Who give him at the bequest of Pilate a very different set of gifts. Still meant for a king, but a very different set of gifts. but only as a mockery. Crown of thorns, a robe to cover his scars, and a, a scepter to be beaten with, and a cross to call his throne. At which time there is no star shining in the sky, but rather a, a great, inexplicable in some ways, darkness that settles over the whole land until those very same soldiers seeing him hang lifeless on the cross are driven to finally say, as the wise men would have, this is truly the Son of God. And to close, let me just ask you, looking forward to Christmas, let me just ask you, if your journey looks at all like the journey of the wise men. Whether whatever's got your attention in life, whatever wonder of this world, and there are many, whether that's leading you into God's word and ultimately to the worship of God's son. Because this is meant to, to be our journey too. E even if the place we start is the most anti-God, anti-Christ one we can think of astrology in the ancient world, or a psychic in Chicago. 
We're meant to find the fingerprints of God all over this world and to follow them out of those dark places and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or maybe the starting point is somewhere else, somewhere less depraved. Maybe it's not astrology, but astronomy or some other science or, or something simpler like just the enjoyment of your kids or the pleasure of the seasons. Or maybe it's the wonder of story, of, of literature and music and art. But no matter what it is, it is meant to be the same journey from finding God in the world to hearing God in his word to enjoying God and his son in worship. Let me encourage you that if you find yourself anywhere short of that end, the end of that journey, don't give up until you get there. Heavenly Father, my prayer for us today is that your grace would be seen, that your Son would be lifted high, and how far we're willing to go in search of you, and how lavishly we care about you, and how spiritually sensitive we are to you. And so all that points to your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.